Welcome to the Emerging Minds podcast. You're with Sophie Guy, and today I'm speaking with Bill Wilson about effective engagement of Aboriginal families and children about their child's social and emotional well-being. Bill Wilson is a narratively trained social and emotional well-being worker who has worked extensively in the fields of alcohol and drugs, child protection, child and adolescent mental health services, Aboriginal education and Aboriginal men's health. He has a strong belief in the power of Aboriginal people and communities to be the change agents in their own lives. Well, thank you very much, Bill, for coming in today and having a chat to me. I really appreciate it. No worries, Sophie. Could you start by telling us a bit about your background and how, how you came to work in Aboriginal social and emotional wellbeing? My background is quite varied. Uh, you know, I've worked in public service. I worked in there for 14 years. So in primarily in those roles, there was um, work in Aboriginal health specifically, working within that, within Aboriginal men's health. I also worked in the area of child protection in Families SA. Worked in Aboriginal education um, within that and also started a program in Murray Bridge working for Child and Adolescent Mental Health Service, CAMS, working with young people, Aboriginal young people, around their mental health. And more recently I'm doing some work with uh, the Nutanjiti Regional Authority where I'm the acting CEO mm -hmm. and um, we've recently become an, an empowered community which is a, a federally government funded framework that looks at putting some more power and ownership of how Commonwealth dollars are spent within the Murraylands region. Okay, what's important to know about child social and emotional wellbeing from an Aboriginal perspective, or maybe it's from your perspective, I'll let you tell me. You know, I think for me, it's um, very much in a holistic sense. I think some services might focus on one particular area of a young person, I think we can't do that in isolation. I think we have to take into account all the issues that surround that particular young person, from, I guess, some of the challenges that they face as a young person to the dynamics of the family, not always assuming that it's, it's mum and dad, it's in particular in Aboriginal families, the extended family, in particular grandmothers, um, the roles that they play. What else is going on for that young person um, in the context of his own community? And then, then also, who are the other service providers that are maybe providing support into that young person or that family? And how can we work more collaboratively in that wraparound services to our Aboriginal young people or, or our families? So what does that look like to engage or work as a practitioner holistically with, if you're faced with an, a, an Aboriginal young person, a child, what would it look like to work holistically with them? That would be certainly about building relationships with all the key people in that family, not, not just the child in, in isolation. Mm -hmm. And that takes time um, around building a sustainable relationship. And uh, I think sometimes as service providers, we just need to just kind of slow that down and be conscious that that first engagement is a really important one to, to building a foundation. And I think it's about getting that trust, you know, in terms of them trusting you as the, as the practitioner, as the organisation, and then, and then you build that steadily um, over a point of time. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I'm all about the relationship and I think Aboriginal people are relational people. 
And what does, could you just talk a bit more about building a relationship? How do you, if, if you're met with an Aboriginal family, how do you build a trusting relationship with them in, a, in, in the first go? As an Aboriginal practitioner, one of the things I give of myself in that initial engagement, is I certainly won't be taking notes or doing any assessments on, on the first engagement. And within that, in that initial engagement, it's about identifying who your mob is if you're an Aboriginal practitioner. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what I meant by giving something of yourself to that. Uh -huh. And it's around trying to create a connection um, within that. So in that first engagement, I'm probably speaking more than, than they are mm -hmm. and, and offering up something of myself in terms of building that relationship, who I am, who my mob is, and whether there's some connection made through their family to mine. So, you know, for a non-Aboriginal person, obviously it's a different um, task mm. in terms of creating that. But I still think by not trying to go to the issue at hand on the first engagement, I would steer away from that. I'd be really about trying to build that rapport in that first initial engagement. And I think it's about trying to get them back in the door the second time. Uh -huh. um, many organisations can get people through the door once. I mean, there's a great saying I always, I always like to use is that you know, people will vote with their feet. If they derive something from that initial first engagement and you can get them to vote with their feet and coming back in a second time, a third time, then you must be doing something that's engaging for them to keep coming back. Uh-huh. Yeah. Could you tell me a bit about services and programs that do get this right, where Aboriginal people do come back and repeatedly use the service? And yeah, what, what, what are they getting right in that? I guess the one I'll speak to is the one uh, when I was employed with Uniting Communities and we're working with uh, Aboriginal people around issues of alcohol and drugs. Mm -hmm. You know, I think early in that model, it's around how do you get the, the, the clinical models to marry up with the, the Aboriginal cultural context. And um, I think early in that program, we, we, we didn't have the match right. It was very strong in the clinical sense mm -hmm. and not a lot of uh, cultural context in that. So it's around trying to get the balance where they can exist together. And given that we were working in an Aboriginal specific program uh, at the time, and part of my role was to ensure that there was a cultural context in there. So we developed some tools that assisted the people that worked as practitioners in our, in our program, mm -hmm. um, cultural, cultural tools. When we knew we started to get that program moving in a, a stronger direction where more Aboriginal people became involved in the program was when we started to receive some peer referrals. So it wasn't, it wasn't government agencies referring into that, it was people that were actually using the program that were talking to their family and then were talking to their friends and saying, hey look, this program helped me. Okay, um, I'll switch back now to getting into the practice again. And what is important for non-Aboriginal practitioners, practitioners to know about engaging Aboriginal community parents and children? I guess when I was working with a lot of um, when I was the only Aboriginal worker within CAMS, I, I got that question asked of me a lot. Mm -hmm. And I guess one of the things I said is like, don't overcomplicate it. 
Um, if, if we could just pair it back that that first engagement either with that young person and with that family is very important. You know, one of the policies that I changed when I was working within CAMS was once a referral come in, they allocated five appointments for you to see that person and then transition them out. And I said, look, if we're going to build a better reputation with the Aboriginal community with CAMS, we have to do away with that. <laughs> That, that internal policy uh -huh. because it might take me three times to build some sort of trust with that particular young person and I, I always included their family as a part of it I couldn't justify a transition out of that program in in five engagements mm -hmm. so I'm um, proud to say that we, we we done away with that policy CAMS at that point had a number of Aboriginal young people that were being referred in, but 80% of them would be seen once and never seen again. Okay. So the program that I came into was to look at addressing that particular need. So there were some recommendations that I put in place that one was doing away with the five, um, five appointments only, mm -hmm. and then also developing some cultural context conversations that can be included within, within their assessment tools. Mm -hmm. And that was a little challenging because I work with everyone from a um, mental health nurse background, social work background, OT background, psychologist background, psychiatrist. And mm -hmm. um, there's a range of uh, people that work within there and they all had their own models mm. of engagements that they worked from. Mm -hmm. So it was around um, supporting them all in that, but also looking at their own caseload and how many Aboriginal people that they would see and only one. Mm -hmm. And over a period of a couple of years, we started to get um, some more traction in, in Aboriginal young people and families coming back, voting with their feet. What are the main challenges or barriers to effective engagement of Aboriginal families in non-Aboriginal services? You know, there's a whole history there of what various child protection acts have, have done to our Aboriginal families. And I'd still say that that fear is very real for our Aboriginal families. In terms of what I share with you as a clinician, as a practitioner, you know, it, it still happens that we still have shocking rates of Aboriginal children being removed today. Uh -huh. They're at an all time high. Effectively, we, we're creating another stolen generation of, of Aboriginal children mm. into a system which I don't which I actually personally believe should be part of our close the gap KPIs. I really feel that it's not. It's not right. Currently, it's not. It's almost uh, an unspoken, not very well publicised around the rates of Aboriginal children coming into the child protection system uh -huh. at the moment. So we get a lot of our families not feeling that they can speak. Um, openly about whatever issues are impacting in uh -huh. that family. Mm -hmm. You know whether that whether that information, whether their story is going to be um, respected by that clinician, respected by that organisation, in, in terms of what people are prepared to to share. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's about how how Aboriginal people become engaged with that organisation. Is it mandatory for them 
to turn up to an organisation because it's of the directive of Department of Corrections, say BOL, the courts or Department of Child Protection. All these things contribute to you know, Aboriginal people walking into an organisation for the first time. I think as service providers, we have to have some understanding of that and some respect in that, that they've initially, they have opened the door, they have came in, even if it is in a, uh, a mandated sense, as a service provider, you should look at that as, a, as an opportunity to impact on that family. You're listening to an Emerging Minds podcast. Is it helpful for practitioners to, non-Aboriginal practitioners to have a conversation around fear, around child protection or to touch on the intergenerational trauma? Is that a useful part of early conversations? I think it's about maybe putting some questions to them about why they're here and asking the question of them, what are your concerns Uh from in that? So if, if within that they identify some of those issues, then I think that's a space to unpack that a little bit and and have that conversation with them. Um, Most service providers are mandated notifiers Mm. and it's a part of your practice to declare that um, straight up. Yeah. And, um, you know, in all roles that I've been in, I I do have to declare that around, uh, in and around that. But I think in that initial engagement, that that's an opportunity to open that to open that space up. Mm-hmm. And if you do get some of those sort of things around those concerns, then to have a conversation, uh, an open conversation about that. When I worked for CAMS, um, one of the things that were clearly identified was that our Aboriginal community had a perception that CAMS was attached to child protection. Okay. A lot of families didn't understand the context that, well, actually, it's a, it's a completely separate department, still within state government. Uh-huh. It has a relationship with the child protection, but our overwhelmingly our community just thought that we were a part of the child protection system. And which probably which probably identified why a lot of our a lot of our families were only seen once and, and never engaged again. Uh-huh. So it was a, almost a an, an education process of speaking about CAMS as a service provider being very different to what it was known back then, Families SA, Child Protection. Yeah. Yeah. So it was almost sort of debunking some of those myths yep. that still sit within our, um, our communities and families uh-huh. around some of that fear and, 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 and trust, trust issues. Mm. Mm. Okay. But I think in terms of um, uh, how do we support non-Aboriginal practitioners in that space, you know, I think there's some stuff that you could do internally around some cultural context training mm-hmm. um, within that that can support whatever models of care and, and engagement that they utilise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was something that we invested in in my time at CAMS. That kind of links to the next question I wanted to ask you around what is good practice at the service or organisation level to support Aboriginal community and Aboriginal families? I think a key aim is that you should be trying to empower them. Empower them to be their own change agent in their lives. And um, I know initially it's around maybe building up and imparting some skill set 
to them around some of that management of their own issues. But I think for anything to be sustainable around change, that we need that to be led by that individual mm-hmm. within that family. And um, I think as a service provider, that that should be a name that we, that we empower the individual to lead their own lives. I'm narratively trained, I think it's a good model for, for our Aboriginal people. We're natural storytellers. But how, how do you build a, a safe space where you can get someone to share their story? And in many cases, it's easy to talk about the problem story because you, you live within that context of the problem story. Mm-hmm. It's around how do you build the trust to say, okay, if you were to transition and these issues of alcohol and drugs and relationship issues were not present, what would your preferred story look like? Well, what does that transition to that journey looks like? For me, when I, when I always got someone to speak openly to that, you could almost see like a physical transition where it's a bit more light in their eyes, the, the shoulders go back, there's a passion for people to want to wanna move to a better life, whether that's for themselves, for their children, for their immediate extended family. You've talked a little bit about narrative therapy. Are there other models that may come from, you know, Western clinical models or maybe have been developed in um, Aboriginal cultural contexts that are also supportive? Yeah. Yep. For me, I use a bit of motivational interviewing as well. Yep. So I remember when I started being exposed to MI, I was working for CAMS at the time and, and it was a bit confronting to me because you have to give some airspace to what is positive about maybe if it was their drug use or their alcohol misuse, you had to give them a, some airspace to kind of articulate what were some of the positive things about that. And when I gave some airspace, some time for them to articulate to me what was positive about that for them, and you know, some of the things I heard about it is that it kept them socially connected. Okay. Even though they knew what they were doing wasn't in their best long-term interest, but it, it kept them connected to a group. Mm-hmm. I remember one lady explaining to me, Bill, um, I know it's not in my best interest, I know it's not in my kids' best interest, but I'd rather be wrong but still be connected than doing the right thing but being in isolation. Yeah. So for me to hear that, it was an opportunity for me to unpack with them around what this isolation thing was mm-hmm. and that there would be other people that would would support her in that transition. She just had to look outside of her immediate supports to identify that. She came to a realization herself, which I think was the greatest was the greatest thing that she didn't need anyone to point that out to her, that she just needed to look a bit harder, take herself out of her comfort zone mm. that she'd been living in. And for some of our mob, it's you know, 20, 30 years living a particular life. And I, I like to use think, as Aboriginal people, we've we got to get more comfortable in having uncomfortable conversations mm. or changes that we want to bring about in our lives. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm. Yep. Is there anything else that 
we haven't covered or haven't quite asked that you'd like to share today? Yeah, there's probably a couple of things. Some of the work that I've done more recently in, in Victoria is that I've been involved in a program that's worked with Aboriginal men who are, who are incarcerated. Mm -hmm. So in, in Victorian prisons and, um, you know, one of the things I'm really conscious of with our mob is, is that when people are d disconnected from their culture, from their identity and from their mob, there's a whole range of issues that can, can impact on, on Aboriginal people. And I think one of the by-products or what it manifests itself into is issues of self-medication in terms of alcohol, um, drugs. And I, I think that's something that as service providers we should always be uh, have in the back, in the back of our minds, is that we should never really underestimate what their own cultural identity is as well. The importance of that. Absolutely, uh -huh. yeah. yeah. The, the, the absolute importance mm. of that and, and feeling, as Aboriginal people, as I said, I think we're relational and we're also very spiritual beings. And when we don't have a cultural identity, that I like to describe that that spirit is, is interrupted. Mm. And if we can be conscious of that and, and and work with the individuals. Some it's a very a very uncomfortable conversation to have with it, with our people around their own cultural identity. But once again, if we can get more comfortable in, in having that uncomfortable conversation, because mm -hmm. sometimes that's really pushed down and really suppressed. And as mm -hmm. I said, it, it, it manifests in in, in other ways if that if that issue is not addressed or not not spoken to. I imagine there's a lot of hard emotions attached to that, a lot of grief and rage perhaps, yeah. anger. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, a wide variety of um, issues that are that are connected to that. Mm. And um, I think a lot of our Aboriginal organisations work in a model where that's at the forefront of their minds in terms of that engagement. But it's really about where people are on their, you know, whether they're prepared to have that conversation, whether they're prepared to look into that. A lot of the men that I came across in, in, in those Victorian prisons were, um, were searching, searching for their mob, searching for a, a connection, desperate for um, some type of connection. Yeah. That, that, that can actually ground you in that cultural identity. It can actually yeah, complete that, complete that spirit. Yeah, I feel that. <laughs> yeah, it's deep, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Is there anything else that you wanted to to continue about that point, or? No, I think the I think they're the key themes. I guess I wanted to sort of convey um, yeah. here today. But yeah, sustainable change will come from within if you want it to be a long-term strategy that. Whilst you might have some motivation to do it, an external motivation and I hear a lot about is, is, is children yep. um, and, and family. And I get that because we are, as Aboriginal people, we're, we're very connected to our families and clearly our children mm. in that. But I guess what I try to impart is that it, you know, it's great to have those external factors, but you need that inner, that inner drive of, of self mm. as well. And that you've got to want to do it for yourself. 
if you can focus on yourself, get yourself strong, then you can be all that you want to be to your children, to your family, to your community. Yeah. Okay. We may finish up there. Um, thank you very much for your time. No worries. And it's been a really great conversation. Thank you, Sophie. Thanks, Bill. Visit our website at www.emergingminds.com.au to access a range of resources to assist your practice. Brought to you by the National Workforce Centre for Child Mental Health, led by Emerging Minds, and delivered in partnership with the Australian Institute of Family Studies, the Australian National University, the Parenting Research Centre, and the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners. The National Workforce Centre for Child Mental Health is funded by the Australian Government Department of Health under the National Support for Child and Youth Mental Health Programme.